Well, we are continuing a um, small little series in our bigger study of the book of Nehemiah as the Jews have returned back to the city of Jerusalem to study, or excuse me, to repopulate uh, the city and to gather together now in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. Um, We have looked at how important it is for these people of God to be gathered together and as as uh, Tim just pointed out in, in his reading and the focus of his prayer was how centrally focused they were on the Word of God as they gathered. And we've been trying to apply these things to uh, the church today as we think about how we might gather together as God's people. Nehemiah was a faithful leader. Ezra the scribe was also a faithful leader of the Jews who were teaching the law of God to the people, and they are now responding to that law that they had been um, so uh, separated from, in a sense, in their years of captivity with the Babylonians and then the Assyrians. And so we are now seeing in chapter 8 of Nehemiah them coming back into this rebuilt city with a rebuilt temple. They are now populating the area again Um, And they are beginning to look at God's word and see what does God teach us? How does it instruct us as to how we might worship him as God's people? And so this is the application for us as God's people in the church today. We look at God's word and we ask, how might God call us to worship him in a way that honors and glorifies his name? And so last week, just as a review, we looked at two points uh, to this Um, this sermon on God's holy city. Number one, we talked about what it means to be gathered and hungry. As the word of God was read to the people, they responded with such uh, admiration and honor of God and his word that they literally stood up and that they were willing to stand up for over four hours to hear the word of God being preached. And so we looked at last week, and I'm not going to re-preach my sermon Um, But we looked at how important it is for us as God's people to be gathered around the Word of God. That we're not looking at the the, uh, philosophies of man. We're not looking at the the best uh, ideas and things out there. We want God to instruct us as to what we might do, how we might live in this world as followers of Christ. And so we want to center our worship as we gather together as God's people not on philosophies of man, but on the truth and the wisdom of God. And what we see from the people in Nehemiah is that they were hungry to to hear the word of God. We talked about 70 years of captivity, now finally getting back to repopulate the city, and now having the opportunity to once again celebrate the feasts uh, uh, that, that God had commanded Moses and the, and the Israelites, and once again to hear the word of God read, it was an overwhelming situation and experience for them. They were hungry for the word. And we talked about the importance as believers to also be hungry as we gather. But also, not only hungry, but we talked about them being needy. That we come in this humble state submitting ourselves to the authority of God's word. Not thinking that we are smarter or more wise than God, but instead coming knowing that we are dependent upon him. That we desire desperately to uh, know how he might want us to live in this world. 
how we might accomplish his purposes for our life instead of trying to coerce him to accomplish the purposes that we might think are best. And so we see that the people gathered to hear the word of God proclaimed and read and that the Levites were scattered out in verses 1 through 8. They were scattered out among the people helping them make sense of what was being read. And so there we have them both being hungry and being needy. And of course, we also come to God's word very needy of the preaching of God's word, of the exhortation, of the admonition of God's word in our lives. That we as believers gather together, not just to hear the preaching of the word, but in essence to preach the word of God to each other. That we have an opportunity as brothers and sisters in Christ, even today, as we think about our friends uh, that are, are grieving so desperately in this very morning, hearing the, the news of the passing of, of Fred, our de- de- dear and beloved brother. And we think, how might I administer the word of God to them? How might I pray fervently the scriptures in, in such a way to uh, ask God to comfort them, to give them that peace that surpasses all understanding? We can use the word of God and help with others in our, in our midst to, to administer and care for them because we are all needy and desperate of God's attention and God's direction in our lives. So those are the first two points from last week. We're going to finish uh, with three more points. This is why I couldn't get it all in one sermon, unless it be two hours long. But we're going to look at today, the, the rest of this chapter, starting with the, gathered of, the gathering of God's people and their rejoicing. The gathering of God's people and their rejoicing. Starting in verses 9 through 11, the scriptures tell us that Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra, priest, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for the people, for the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Verse 10, they're told, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed them, all the people saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Now, why were they grieving? Were the Levites discouraging the grieving over the law of God? Well, the answer to that is no. What they were experiencing in these very moments, and and what you might uh, understand as you continue to read through Nehemiah, is that in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see the people respond by confessing their sin. So when we are talking here about the gathering of God's people and we see them grieving, we need to understand immediately they are grieving over their sin. They have fallen deep into conviction by the very spiritual words of God being declared, the Holy Spirit was at work in them so that they became overwhelmed with grief and mourning and weeping because the law of God was taking its effect. That's what the law does. The Spirit of God so moves in our lives that it literally it, it falls upon our ears and the Spirit of God begins to use it in such a way that it, it literally the Word of God comes in conflict with the sin in our own lives. And so they weren't discouraging grieving. 
They were just teaching those who were grieving. They were administering the word of God to the grief. Because the truth is, is that grieving over sin, conviction over sin, is actually a healthy process in our spiritual journeys. Conviction of sin or grieving over sin is a natural and good process of the Holy Spirit exposing the dark places in our lives with the light of the gospel. This is what was going on in the midst of these people. And because grief is not an uncommon situation to man, as it comes in conflict with the Word of God, it will produce fruit. That God will bring about some work of regeneration as He deems willing and necessary. So He therefore declares the Word of God, and those who respond positively whether it be with grief or with faith, we know that God is working in their hearts because they have responded. What brings us such great despair as followers of Jesus is when we see the, the word of God being declared and no one responds. That's the sadness in our hearts. That the word of God is not taking root that we can see. We don't see the effects. But, but brothers and sisters, friends, let me encourage you that even when we with our, 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 our fuzzy eyes cannot see the work of God at work, we know that the word of God does not return void, that it is doing a work in some way, fashion, or form in ways that we can't see. We must trust God and his processes through the word of God and the Holy Spirit to do what is necessary. Matthew Henry writes in his commentary on the whole Bible that the law works death and speaks terror. It shows men their sins and their misery and danger because of sin and thunders a curse against everyone that continues not in every part of his duty. This is what the law of God has done to us as we've believed and trusted in Christ. That it has brought about this fear of wrath and fear of judgment so that we might respond positively in the hope of Jesus Christ and the work of his uh, redemption. So let us, in a sense, celebrate a grieving over sin. I know that sounds strange. But we should celebrate the grieving of sin because we know that the Spirit is at work. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul actually commends the grieving over sin in the church at Corinth. He writes, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that, through, that, so that you suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul is rejoicing because he sees that the grieving over their sin brought about a lasting fruit. And while grieving over sin is not the end, it is the beginning of spiritual change and transformation in the heart of a, a person of faith. And so as these people are hearing the words of the Lord in Nehemiah's day, and they are grieving, what do the Levites do? As the teachers of that day, they're not going to let them live in that grief. 
They're going out now and they are administering the word of God to them. And what do they say? They encourage them, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, when we grieve over sin, our grief needs a further admonition. It needs more instruction. We should never be satisfied with just grief. Never never be satisfied with just conviction. But allow the conviction of sin to lead to a belief and a trust in Christ and a hope and victory over that sin. This is what the Levites are doing. They are pointing the people to the joy of the Lord, which is their strength. That's their exhortation. They're telling them, find joy. Don't live in this grief. Do not weep and be sad. Find joy in the strength of the Lord. He is your joy. He is your strength. Now there's some background to that statement. As we've said, this seventh month of the, of the Jewish calendar was the holy month. They started out the month with the Feast of Trumpets. On the tenth day of the month, they had the Day of Atonement. In the fifteenth to the twenty-first day of the month, they had the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. This was the holy month, as we said, because it was the seventh month. And it was a time of reflection and joy of all God's provision. God is a faithful God. He is a God who provides for all of our needs. And as these Levites are instructing them according to the word of God, they are reminding them, they're saying, people, This is the holy month. This is the day to remember that God has always been faithful to us. He has always been a providing God, a faithful God who has never failed us. And the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths is just an example of that to which you would find and derive your joy. See, the the Word of God is this record book of God's faithfulness to His people. Therefore, we find our joy in the midst of our grieving over sin. We find our joy because we are reminded God is faithful. Even in the midst of our sin, God is faithful to forgive. Even in the midst of our despair, God is faithful to comfort. Even in the midst of our weakness, God is our strength and our refuge. These are the things that bring us to rejoicing. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 12, looking back to the promise of, or or the commands of Moses to the people, he tells them, when you go to the Jordan, go over the Jordan, and live in the land that your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all of your enemies around so that you live in safety... Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. In verse 12, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. The rejoicing commanded by Moses is intricately tied to the faithful character and provision of Almighty God. That's where we derive our joy. 
That's where we derive our strength. And so this month was a day of celebration. This month was a day to remember all that God had done. And their disobedience against God had, been ex- had exposed the reading of the law. And there the Levites are saying, no, no, rejoice, take refuge in Him. Psalm 5 verse 11. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name will exult in you. And so we as the gathered church, when we are so moved by the word of God that we are grieved over our sin. And let me just, let me pause right there and, 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 and give you a stern encouragement and, and warning to evaluate your own life and heart based upon your grief. In other words, grief over sin or conviction over sin is a very, very much a litmus test. It is a barometer for your spiritual journey. Is the Holy Spirit so moving you as you read the scriptures that you are seeing the sin in your life exposed? Because friend, if you are not being grieved over your sin, you're not reading the scriptures properly. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. And you can go and find churches all over the world that are never going to talk about the reality of the darkness of your sin. But let me encourage you that if you don't embrace the darkness of your sin, you'll never understand the beauty of God's grace and what He's done for you. It will be a byproduct if you don't know how deep and dark your soul is and what Jesus Christ has rescued you from. And so we as the church gather and we come bruised and broken by the living words of God. We come ready to sit under the preaching of God's word because we're like these MMA fighters that go day by day and they, they train and they spar and, they, and they, they abuse their bodies. Why? So they can grow and they can be strengthened for the battle before them in the octagon. And you and I, we come to sit under the preaching of God's word, not just to have our, our emotions uh, pattered and puffed, but to be exposed into what God might reveal in our lives so that we might grow as Christians, so that we might understand who we are and who Christ is making us and transforming us into by his power and purpose. And so God's spirit lives in his people and he uses the word of God to penetrate the darkest parts of our life and bring forth a great transformation. And we come as the gathered church, not pointing fingers, but instead locked arms knowing that each one of us is being transformed that way. None of us are perfect. None of us do what we want to do. No, we don't honor the Lord and honor Christ the way that we want. But we are gathered as broken people resting in the gospel, knowing that Jesus Christ will do a great work in us Beyond what limited power or strength that we have in ourselves, he will accomplish what's impossible in us. Because it's his power on display and his glory. And so the people of Nehemiah's day, God's people were gathered 
And they are being encouraged to rejoice as the gathered people of God. And so let us rejoice in what God has done. Let us rejoice in what Christ has accomplished, knowing that we have victory in him and in his name. Secondly, or fourthly, we are gathered and unified. Looking back from last week, we are gathered and hungry. Second, we are gathered and needy. Now, third, we are gathered and rejoicing. And fourth, we are gathered and unified. Verses 13 through 15. On the second day, the Bible says, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to do what? To study the law of God. And they found in it, written in the law, that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feasts of the seventh month. And they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Now remember, the Feast of Booths was supposed to happen on the 15th day of the month. They couldn't make it past the second day of the month. They were so excited at what they had discovered in the Word of God that they wanted to go out and immediately obey what they had seen and heard. They're not trying to be disobedient. They are literally rejoicing in obedience to what God has commanded them to do. And without haste, they go forth. They go forth to gather these branches, these materials to build their tabernacles, their booths as they did. Now, the Feast of Booths was a very unique festival for the people. It was an annual pilgrimage. They would come and and celebrate for eight days. On the first day of this feast, and on the eighth day of this feast, it was a holy convocation. It was a Sabbath rest. And the days in between, they would literally dwell in these temporary shelters that they built on the flat roofs of the city of Jerusalem. They would go out and gather materials. Much of you felt this way in the ice storm that we just experienced, that you were living in a tabernacle. The point was was simply to be reminded of a time in Israel's history where God had allowed them through the the liberation of their captivity from Egypt, he allowed them to wander in the wilderness, living in these booths and providing all that they needed. In their journey from Egypt to the promised land, although that journey took longer than expected, God continually showed his provisional and kind hand to a grumbling and disobedient people. And as they lived representative in these booths, those booths represented their total dependence in God's provision. So we know the story, right? Manna would fall down. They would collect what they need. The next day of manna, the next day, God was literally providing all that was needed for them on a daily basis teaching them to be completely and totally dependent upon him. And so now the people of God come together in Nehemiah's day. They hear uh, from the reading of God's word about this 
this feast or this festival. And what do they do? They jump on it. They're out there collecting materials. They're building their, their booths on top of the homes and they're dwelling there celebrating what God has done. But there's a second reason that they celebrated the Feast of the Booths and the Tabernacles. It was the, the time of the autumn harvest. And so again, it was, a, it was a celebration of the joy of what God had provided them. Their, their, their baskets uh, were full of produce. They had harvested what, what God had given them in the land. And this is why the Levites said, this is a time of rejoicing and not weeping. Now I want you to picture for a moment, if you lived in the city of Jerusalem during this feast, the seventh month, and you're up on the roof, and you know the landscape of Jerusalem, you understand it's an elevated area, and, and, and you can be up there in these booths, and you're, you're looking across the landscape of the city, and you're literally seeing from as far as your eye can see in this large city, tons of booths and people's living doing the exact same thing that you're doing. Living in the same type of structure with their kids, trying to keep them from falling off the roof and and other things like that. They're they're literally living and doing the very same thing you're doing. Now, from from an outsider's perspective, if if the the, the neighboring nations came and, and saw this happening, they would have thought that the Jewish people were a bunch of idiots. What are they doing dwelling on top of the booths? But the Jewish people wouldn't have felt that way because they looked out across the landscape and they saw the rest of God's people doing the very same thing, unified together, focusing on the great provision of God and celebrating and worshiping in their own booths. They weren't worried about the sacrifice of building this structure. They weren't worried about the the inconveniences typically of living outside for a whole week. They were unified together, worshiping the Lord as God's people. And I think this is a, a great testimony to the church. That as we gather together as God's people, we are like like minded brothers and sisters coming together with so much in common. So much to be thankful for. And what's our focus? Not look how great of a Christian I am. Look how great of a God we serve. We all come together unified. Looking out the landscape of this world and going, these brothers and sisters are battling just like I'm battling. They're fighting just like I'm fighting. They're struggling just like I'm struggling. And we're all dependent upon the powerful work of Jesus Christ our refuge and strength, our Lord and Redeemer. Let me take you somewhere else. John chapter 7. Jesus got to experience many of these feasts and festivals as a Jewish man. And in John chapter 7, we see that Jesus was a part of one such feast of booths. And in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39... Jesus takes the opportunity to draw all the history of celebrating these feasts, most particularly the Feast of the Booths, and he he brings them together and he makes it land upon himself as the purpose, the sole purpose of why such of a festival or feast existed. John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. 
On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Church, this is why we are unified. Because of the work of Jesus. Because of the living water that we have we've partaken of. And he unifies us together so that we come as God's people to worship him under one mission, one purpose. We forsake time in our day to gather on this Lord's day. We sing the same songs and hear the same scriptures read and listen to the same boring sermon so that we can worship Jesus as our provider. That we can remember that he is the one who paid it all who provided the needs that we had to be reconciled to God through his death and resurrection. And we come today in a minute to the Lord's table. And as we come, we will remember, much like these Jews, we will remember our spiritual wandering, that we were the enemies of God, and we will celebrate the Lord's sacrifice who liberated us from the bondage of sin and death. We'll come forward and we'll take this meal together as one people united by the work of Jesus. And we might take it individually, but notice we won't send you home with the juice and the crackers. We will say we will take this together because we are united as a gathered body of people reflective on what Christ has done to bring us as one people. United in Him for all eternity. Finally, God's people gathered and were obedient. They gathered and they were obedient. Verse 16, And the people went out and they brought them and made the booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the, lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to the day of the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day from the first day to the last he read the book of the law of God and they kept the feast seven days and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. The final observation is simply this and and this will bleed into the sermon next week is that they could do nothing more than obey. This is the beauty of God's work in the hearts of the people in Nehemiah's day and in the hearts of us today. And that is is that as God brings forth his word, we are convicted and grieved over sin. But then we can rejoice in him because he brings us to obedience. He brings us to obedience. Let me say very clearly that God calls us to obey him. You have a responsibility, and I have a responsibility, when we hear the word of God, to obey. But if you ever, if you ever think that in your own strength, you have the experience, or the resume, or the fortitude to obey God outside of his own power to help you obey, you're deceiving yourselves. The Bible says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. 
And only by God's grace has has He made you alive together with Christ. He is the one that causes us to obey. He is the one that empowers us to hear the words of God. He's, He's the one that removes the scales from our eyes. He's the one that gives us strength to hear and believe. He's the one that gifts us the faith to respond to the gospel. By grace you've been saved, not of works, lest you would boast. And so the obedience that we, we demonstrate in our own lives is the last reason in which we might have joy in the Lord. Because our obedience brings us joy. When we obey, when we follow after God's word, when we respond in such a way to do what Jesus has commanded us to do, we are full of joy and rejoicing because we are obedient. These people hear the word read. They see what Moses spoke to them by the command of God. And and in responding, the Bible tells us in verse 17 that there was great rejoicing. They were expedient to do it. They were faithful to carry it out. And it brought them great joy in their hearts. You'll know this passage in John chapter 15. Jesus is teaching his disciples toward the end of his ministry with them. And he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Notice the correlation between the joy that Jesus had as the son obeying the father in the same correlation that we would experience joy as we obey the word of God. That Jesus' joy would be in us and that our joy may be full in correlation with how we keep his commandments and obey him, abiding in his love, doing what he has commanded us. D.A. Carson writes that the son does not give his disciples his joy as a discreet package. He shares his joy insofar as they share his obedience. The obedience that willingly faces death to self-interest. So does making a booth on the top of your house and living in it for a week sound like an inconvenience to you? In a normal day, that sounds like complete buffoonery. But when the Lord commands us to do it, it's a treasure to do what the Lord commands. It's a gift. It's not a burden. It's a gift to obey what God has commanded His people who has so graciously loved us and cared for us. What a joy it is to follow the Lord, to love Him in obedience. And to be reminded that our obedience is just a sign of our growth in Christ as we walk in Him. And so the people respond in in obedience individually, but also corporately. And I think it's important for us to think about us individual, think of our individual obedience, but also our corporate obedience. Well, our individual obedience I've covered. Let's think about what does it mean as the gathered church to be an obedient church? 
And, it, and the answer to that is to do what God has called us to do in relationship to worshiping him. In other words, as I asked previously, how does God expect us to worship him? Well, theologians have come up with these names as they always do to make things somewhat clear. And one theological term that maybe you've heard, maybe you haven't heard, that, that its practices in churches is called the regulative principle. And the regulative principle simply states that a church is seeking out to do all that God has commanded the church to do. That we are seeking to be a, a biblical church like redemption. We don't use the word regulative principle, but we are seeking to look at Scripture and structure are gathering together as a corporate body in obedience to the Word of God. What does God want us to do as a corporate body to be obedient to how He wants to be worshipped? Mark Dever states in his book, The Deliberate Church, that Jesus is building His church and He's doing it by the power of His own Word. He regulates the church's worship by that same Word, graciously informing us how we are to approach Him. And so theologians smarter than I have come up with simple ways to think about healthy biblical components of a corporate gathering. They say we should preach the Word, Pray the word, sing the word, read the word, and see the word. What's that, what's that focused on? The obedience of God's people to gather together and not flippantly say, let's just do whatever feels right. Instead to say, let's do what God instructs us to do according to his word. That's how we are obedient as a corporate body. So we're called to be obedient individually. We're called to be obedient Corporately, as people who are transformed by the powerful work of Christ in our lives. And he instructs us. And one important way that he instructs the church is to remember him. And so we come now to our time of, of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite Connor to come up and stand awkwardly behind me as I continue to preach. As every good worship leader does. Because the, the Word of God teaches us, and, and, and the Lord Jesus Himself reminds us that as God's people, we are to remember Him. The Jews remembered the work of God through the feasts and the festivals, and we are remembering the Lord Jesus through the Lord's Supper. We see His humanity symbolized in the bread. That he came into the world and he took on flesh. And that that same flesh that we share with him was different in the sense that Jesus never sinned. He was sinless in every way. And he, set, he stands in our place as a sinless substitute. Bruised and crushed for our iniquities. That he freely gave on our behalf. We see the juice symbolizing the need for sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. That sacrificial system that was practiced all throughout the Old Testament culminates in the perfect Lamb of God who gives himself as a ransom for many. 
That his blood provided a perfect and complete atonement for the sins of his people. So that nothing is required of us to appease the wrath of God or earn some favor with God. Jesus paid it all. And we gather today as a body of believers to remember this together. That we are one in Christ. That My prayer is that by faith you have trusted in him. And we take this together in obedience according to the commands of Christ who says, do this in remembrance of me. So if you're a guest with us and you've never taken the Lord's Supper with us, we have a disclaimer. Maybe you've never received the disclaimer before, but simply the disclaimer.